Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness give me life. This is the word of the Lord. Genesis 19 records the account of the destruction of a city called Sodom. Uh, In this ancient city, which was a place that was infamous for its wickedness and for its depravity, there lived a family led by a man named Lot. And God, in his mercy, had chosen to spare Lot and to spare Lot's family from the impending destruction that was awaiting that city. And so as the morning sun begins to rise, two angels arrive in Sodom to escort Lot, along with his wife and their daughters, out of the city and into safety. Genesis 19:17 records it like this. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Filled with fear and uncertainty, Lot's family made their way out of Sodom and into a place of safety, guided by the warning and instruction of those angels. But as they traveled on, Lot's wife, driven by a a strong temptation, allowed her eyes to wander back towards that city that she had called home for so long. In that fateful moment, Lot's wife, her heart, clung to that world that she was leaving behind. Her gaze fixated on that place that had enticed her with its fleeting pleasures. In her disobedience, she let her eyes linger upon the worthless things that held no lasting value. And so as Lot's wife gave in, whether it was to her curiosity or to nostalgia or to regret, she was transformed into a pillar of salt, frozen in time as a lasting testament to the consequences of rejecting divine instruction and allowing one's eyes to wander towards the empty allure of the world. The tragic account of Lot's wife serves as a powerful reminder to us this morning in line with this psalm, a reminder of the perils of disobedience and the dangers of clinging to worldly desires. It's a real-life illustration of the importance of heeding, which is to say listening to and obeying, heeding divine instructions and fixing our eyes on things of eternal significance rather than being captivated by the transient and empty offerings of this world. Jesus spoke of a coming day of judgment in the Gospels, and he compared it to the days of Noah and of Lot, and the people were caught unprepared in this day, uh, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, never thinking that God was going to act in judgment. But he says, when the judgment comes, don't turn back. This is Jesus' instruction, remember Lot's wife. She's become a parable now of someone who did not wholeheartedly obey the Lord's command. She took her eyes off of the good path and fell into the path of destruction. So we've been meditating on Psalm 119 for a few weeks this summer. And as we've heard, Psalm 119 is about rightly valuing God's revelation in words. 
the, the way that God has revealed truth and beauty and goodness to us through his word, his written revelation. And as we've moved through the first four uh, sections of the psalm, we've seen that the psalmist is laying out some basic realities. There are essentially two ways to live. There's a path of diligently pursuing God's instruction, which is, of course, the path that leads to, to blessedness, to happiness, to God himself. And then there's another path that we create for ourselves, a path to foolishness, to rebellion against God and against his instruction, which leads to death. The challenge for us is that it actually sometimes is difficult to tell the difference between these two paths. There is a way that seems right to us, and yet its end is destruction. And so we've seen the psalmist move from his desire to believe God's word with his heart, to confess it with his lips, to moving into a request that God would supernaturally open his eyes so that he might be able to see the beauty and glory and value of God's words in order that he might maintain integrity in the face of outward persecution. And then he laid out his dependence upon God's word as the encouragement that he needs to keep on that path from being cast down in the dirt into running free on God's path of life. Which brings us to this fifth set of eight verses this morning. And our big idea will be this. Heed God's word to distinguish the path of emptiness from the path of life. Heed God's word, says listen and obey. God's word to distinguish the path of emptiness from the path of life. And we'll break it down into two sections of four verses like this. First, heart-driven obedience is the goal of studying God's word. Verses 33 to 36. And then second, hold on to life by fearing God rather than dreading man, 37 to 40. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to behold wondrous things from your law, that you would unveil our, the eyes of our heart as it were, that we might be able to see the beauty that you have in your word. Would you help us to delight in it? Would you help us to learn it, not just for the sake of gaining knowledge, but actually for the sake of obedience? May we walk out of here this morning uh, growing in knowledge of your word, your character, ultimately for the purpose of obedience, knowing that your path is the one that leads to life. Father, would you do this for your glory and our good? We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, in this first section, heart-driven obedience is the goal of studying God's word, verses 33 to 36. So we've noticed over the past few weeks, of course, that this psalm is intentionally repetitive. Uh, It repeats on purpose. This particular psalm, Psalm 119, is an acrostic. So in Hebrew, as the psalmist is writing it, he made each of these eight sets of, of lines begin with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so as he's going through the alphabet, he's crafting these lines poetically to help him rightly value God's written revelation. He wants to be as comprehensive as he possibly can, and so he is covering the topic from A to Z, as it were, as he's walking through the entirety of the alphabet. And so he's coming at it again and again from slightly different angles, using eight different words to describe God's instruction, and really mulling it over in his mind. The psalmist is crafting a long, meditative, poetic piece of devotional art. 
And that's what we're meditating on with him. So the psalm is repetitive, but Hebrew poetry in general uh, is repetitive. It's actually a feature of Hebrew poetry. It usually comes in a pair of lines that are related to each other in some way. So most often the lines are repeating a concept with just different words, different maybe different order, just to reinforce what that first line said, maybe to expand on that first line, maybe to nuance that first line a little bit. And we can see this even right here in verses 33 and 34. They're essentially expressing the same idea. Have a look at your Bible if you've got it there in front of you, verses 33 and 34. The psalmist needs the Lord to teach him, to give him understanding, so that he might keep his law with his whole heart for his whole life. If you sort of just synthesize those two lines, that's the point that's coming across. So when we really slow down, when we really meditate on these words along with the psalmist, we start to notice that there's intentional patterns here in what he's writing about. And so you can start to pick up on some of the nuance and see how these lines are related to each other. And that's really the way that the psalms must be read. You have to read the psalms slowly and carefully. You cannot rush over them without missing the bigger message that the psalmist is intending to communicate. So we might summarize the meaning of the first four verses of this section like this. Heart-driven obedience is the goal of studying God's word. Now look with me at your copy. We're going to read through this and we're going to see if you find that in the text with me. So I've added some some emphasize uh, colors and stuff to sort of help you picture what's going on here. Similar concepts are, are color matched a little bit. So let's read these verses. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. So this section here, this set of eight verses really is a little different from most of the rest of the psalm uh, because he, here he is explicitly speaking to God. He is praying, as Andy mentioned earlier, asking God to act on his behalf. He's making a request of God as he's praying, a petition, if you will. And then he lists what good result would come if that petition or that request of God is granted. We might call that the aspiration so what he's asking God to do, which is in gold on the screen, and then there he's, he's hoping what the result of that request would be in green. So verse 34, give me understanding, we might call that the petition, so that, the purpose, that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart, which is his aspirations, is what he wants the, the result of this to be. So the other three verses in this section of four are expansions on that thought. He really wants to understand, this is the main point here, he wants to understand God's teaching in order to obey it. That's what it means to heed instruction, to listen intently and then to obey. So this is a model for us. Uh, and this model comes with a warning for us as well. If we at any point want to gain knowledge of God's word simply in order to make ourselves seem smarter than somebody else, or simply out of some sense of sort of just general curiosity, or if we want to study the book because we think the Bible is just kind of interesting, and so you study it uh, sort of in the way that you might study some other ancient book, 
but you're studying it, you're gaining information, but you don't actually want to obey it, well, then you've missed the whole point of studying it. Understanding God's word is meant to result in a changed direction of life. Sometimes people like, act like they, they want wisdom, like they want to read from God's word. Maybe someone's going through a trial, uh, perhaps even it's a trial of their own making, and so they're in a moment of desperation reaching out, and so they'll turn to God's word and, and prayerfully consider what God has there, but then when they find what God's wisdom is, and then they find that that wisdom actually challenges them to change their thoughts or their emotions or their attitudes or their beliefs, they reject it. And so they want the understanding, but it turns out that it, it actually isn't God's wisdom that they wanted at all. They wanted confirmation of their own misguided desires. They covered this actually a little bit this morning in the equip class this morning as we're going through the book of James. James says that we are not to be hearers of God's word only, but doers. They're the sort of person who asks for understanding of God's word, but then rejects its authority when God's word comes to him, that person is described by James as being double-minded. Someone who asks for wisdom and then rejects it when they get it is double-minded. They have no intention of actually observing God's instruction with their whole heart. They don't delight in it. Their heart is not inclined towards it. And so their prayers and their actions then are at odds. Requesting wisdom, rejecting wisdom, they want to gain wisdom, but then they want to live unwisely. And when you have no real desire inwardly from the heart to obey God's wisdom, when you find it, you shouldn't expect God to give you that wisdom. James says that that person should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So maybe you've had the experience of feeding an ornery two-year-old child in a, in a high chair, where you, you put the plate of spaghetti in front of her, and she picks it up and just tosses it on the floor. And you're like, okay. Patiently pick it up and put it back in front of her and she just looks at you and giggles and drops it on the floor again. You can keep going. You can pick it up and keep picking it up and keep putting it back, but you shouldn't expect that anything different is going to end up happening. As she looks at you and she giggles and she tosses it on the floor again, you might get a little discouraged. You and I are meant to live on every word that proceeds from God's mouth. And so when he puts it in front of us, do we just giggle and toss it on the floor over and over again? If we want to finish the race that God has given to us to run with maturity as faithful servants, then we need to eat what God puts in front of us. That is how we will persevere to the end, as verse 33 puts it that we might be able to gain the sustenance that we need to finish, to persevere in the race to the end. But here's how this has to work. Here's how this has to work. Our obedience is not coerced outwardly by God. We need our hearts changed so that we can have a passion internally for what is good and true and beautiful and holy. Our obedience has to be driven by our own hearts, not simply a desire for outward conformity. You've probably noticed that your actions tend to follow your desires. Your actions follow your desires. It's probably true of you because that's how humanity works. Your feet walk the path that your heart is set on. 
And so that's why the psalmist is praying that he would get fed up with all the distracting things of the world, that he would gain a real appetite for meaningful, substantive things in God's timeless instruction. And the way he hopes to align his affections towards God to find life might sound counterintuitive at first as we continue to read this psalm. Second, we should hold on to life by fearing God rather than dreading man. Second, hold on to life by fearing God rather than dreading man. Verses 37 to 40. I'll read through this. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. So we might think, if you're just thinking sort of more generally about fear, you might think that being afraid of something would, would put you at distance from that thing. So we might think that if we feared God, we would distance ourselves from God, not obey God. So this might seem a little counterintuitive at first, but let's think carefully about what it means biblically uh, for God to be feared. Verse 38 here is really just another prayer request. The psalmist referring to himself, though, as God's servant. And then he mentions God's promise, what God has committed to in words. So as we're thinking about the, the, the label that the psalmist gives to himself as a servant of God and the promise that God has made to this servant, it reminds us of the whole context of this entire psalm. We don't know for, for sure who wrote this psalm. We don't know when it was written, but it was definitely written by a member of God's covenant people, Israel. Right, so many scholars disagree about exactly when this psalm might have been written. Some think it might have been after they were taken into captivity into Babylon. But no matter when it was written, this verse seems to be a request for God to reassure the psalmist of the covenant promises that he made to Israel, relational promises. That promise that he would be their God and they would be his people that he would never leave nor forsake them, that he would never forget Jerusalem, that he would redeem them from all of their sin and sorrow. These are promises that are made uniquely to God's people. And we can remember what Moses said to Israel right after they received God's instruction in the Ten Commandments. When they received God's law, Deuteronomy 10, Moses says this, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord of your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So as you just read those few verses, it's, it becomes clear that Psalm 119 really is just like an extended exercise in trying to obey that. So to fear God then, if we can see this in the context of a covenant relationship between God and his people in the light of his instruction, to fear God isn't just to be terrified of him. In this sense, it is to walk in his ways. To fear God is to love him, to serve him, to obey him with all of your heart. So for the Christian, we understand that all of God's promises are yes and amen in and through Jesus Christ. So we know that God would would know that 
humanity would never be able since the fall to perfectly fulfill God's law. And so in his mercy, in his love, in his justice, Jesus was sent to be born under the law. He walked perfectly in God's ways. And then through his sacrificial life and death, earned our righteousness on our behalf so that by grace alone, through faith alone, we can cling to the promise that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that our relationship to God's law has changed. The sting of law's judgment is gone and what remains is the wisdom that is going to guide us home. So we've got to remember that this whole meditation that the psalmist is engaging in is taking place within the context of a relationship between God and his people. And you might notice that in verse 37 and verse 40, the beginning and the end of this set of four verses, they're both bookended by this request from the psalmist for God to give him life, life to the full, an abundant life, not just that I might continue to live, but life to the full. Abundant life is found in obeying the law of liberty, as James writes, the instruction that frees us from the bondage to sin, death, and the devil. Worthless things is one of the phrases that comes up here in this passage. In verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Uh, Sometimes the Hebrew poets and prophets uh, refer to idols as worthless things. So we don't know exactly what the worthless things are here. We might say that it's anything that might distract us from God and his glory. Anything that would distract us from a wholehearted devotion to God. Looking at worthless things uh, isn't just bad for your eyes, it's bad for your heart, is the, the point of the psalmist here. It's not just a waste of time. It's not just a waste of your attention, even. Looking at these worthless things has the potential to undermine our trust in God and to cast doubt on his word. We only need to think of Eve in the Garden of Eden to imagine what this looks like. Look, tasty fruit. Yes. After all, why not? Why shouldn't I take it and eat it? Resting your eyes on worthless things is a means of falling into skepticism. It's a means of falling into doubt. Where are the worthless things, friend, that steal your attention? What are those worthless things that steal your attention from God's instruction in your life? What is it that steers you away from obedience because your gaze has been distracted? It could be material possessions, as he mentions himself in verse 36. Maybe it's keeping up your appearance in front of others. Maybe it's the empty pursuit of pleasure or status in other people's eyes. Maybe it's just distractions uh, that divert you from the things that really matter. Maybe it's your Netflix queue. That's getting very specific. I remember the experience of trying to clean up my room when when I was younger. I would be given this task to clean up my room, and inevitably, as I'm going through my closet, I would find a toy that was in the back corner of the closet. And when I found that toy, I'm like, oh, I totally forgot I had this. And then I would just end up playing with that toy forever uh, and never finishing the task that I was given. Just being distracted, never, uh, never finishing the task that was given to me, not following the clear instructions that my parents gave to me because I was just distracted. I forgot where I was at, forgot what I was doing. 
So what is it that can help keep you focused on the, the huge task at hand of sticking to the path of life? What is it that can keep your eyes from turning to vanity? It's not running into the desert to get away from the things of the world because as we all know probably too well, the problem is not simply outside of us. The problem is coming from within. It's a problem of the heart. We need our hearts adjusted. And so for the Christian, the way to turn from the vain things of the earth to the things that matter is to turn your eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face. The transcendent beauty of Jesus unveiled to our eyes by the Holy Spirit and fixing our hearts. This is what the Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers wrote about 200 years ago or so as the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection simply means a growing level of wholehearted devotion towards God that would expel out the dread of others. A huge love for God that drives out the love and fear and dread of others. Look at verse 39. It says, turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good. Reproach simply means uh, insulting or humiliating or taunting. And we read earlier in verse 22 within this same psalm that he has been the victim of scorn and contempt because he was keeping God's testimonies. Is it because he is dedicated to God's ways and word? There are others who are observing and looking on and bringing reproach against him. They are shaming him. They are scorning him. And so he reminds himself in verse 39 that God's rules are good. The psalmist wants to be ruled by God. He does not want to be ruled by his own reputation in the sight of those who have rejected God's rule. He knows that a public shaming might genuinely pressure him into giving up, just escaping the path of life and turning to the path of destruction. This is the prayer, as this psalmist writes, this is the prayer of someone who understands himself pretty well. Uh, he understands his weaknesses. Many of them are common to man. But he knows that there are many dangers, toils, and snares that are ahead of him. Shameful gain, he mentions explicitly, like accumulating wealth and comfort. Looking at worthless things, those empty distractions, which might even be those other idols. Anything that takes your affection, your trust away from God. Or maybe it's peer pressure. Maybe it's the reproach that he dreads. People shaming him for walking in God's ways. Any of those could be things that would take him off course, the course that he knows he wants to walk but is tempted to leave. So the instruction is to you to apply this to yourselves in a way that I never could by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. What is it that is tempting you to walk from the narrow path of life? Is there shameful gain? Have you been wandering into worthless things with your eyes? Have you been 
gazing upon them longingly? Are you tempted by peer pressure to give up the ways of the Lord? The psalmist is instructive for each of us this morning. He prays for three things, it seems to me. He prays that God would take away his fear of man so that he's not afraid and dreading the reproach, that he would take the sting away from that. Second, that he would help him understand and trust God's word, understanding it, trusting it, believing it, obeying it. And that's the third thing. He asks that God would help him to walk in wholehearted obedience, internally motivated obedience, rather than outwardly coerced obedience. This is the blessed path that the psalmist described as being the one that leads to blessedness, to happiness, the good life, indeed to God himself. And so our instruction from this psalm seems clear. We ought to be realistic with ourselves about what it is that we're vulnerable to. So I'm going to ask you again, what is it? What is it that you're vulnerable to? What are the vain things that charm you the most? Think of them carefully and then sacrifice them to his blood. Ask God, even right now in your seat, to redirect your affections, to redirect your desires, to rightly order your desires. And then be on the lookout Friends, we're in a a unique sort of time culturally. There's going to be a lot of people who are realizing that the gospel of the age is not delivering. Be open, be aware, be on the lookout for those whom God has put in your life who are growing in their awareness of the vanity of life. And they're looking for deep, timeless, meaningful responses to the questions of life. Might be a great way to thread the gospel into these conversations with others. In order that we and others might heed God's word and rightly distinguish the difference between that dark, destructive path of emptiness and the flourishing path of life, which is lit and furnished by God's word. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.